0: All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 5, James chapter number 5. So good to be singing together, listening to live music, Uh, really enjoyed it. I want to talk to you today about true faith and patience. I want to ask you a series of questions first question is, what do, you, what do you believe about the Bible? By that I mean, do you believe that Scripture is authoritative? Do you believe that Scripture is true in all that it teaches? What about God? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God is all-powerful? Do you believe that God keeps his promises and that his ways are right? Do you really trust his word in every area of your life? Or do you trust him for salvation and struggle in, in others? The reason I'm asking these questions is that in every generation of Christianity, in each generation, Christians have become a product of their culture. And the challenge of every generation of Christians is to see and reject worldly philosophy and check to see where they are being a product other culture. Our challenge is the same, which is this. Our challenge is to hear and believe God's word, believe God's promise, and trust him, and at the same time resist the urge to take on worldly philosophy and adopt it, and to to view life that way. I think there are many Christians, and you would probably agree with me here, there are many Christians who trust God for salvation and then in essence say, in every area of other area of life, say, God, I've got this. Okay, don't worry about it. We do that maybe subconsciously. Don't even realize that we're doing that. Today's passage is about patience in suffering. Now, if you remember... We call this series Snapshots of True Faith, and each passage that we've gone through, James has been painting a picture of what a real Christian looks like. And in this passage today, we will see that a believer is different from an unbeliever because they resist the urge to take matters into their own hands when things are unjust. Unjust. Now, here's the situation in James 5, 1 to 6. James is condemning rich, unsaved people for oppressing the poor. Particularly, these are poor people who work for them and they're not paying them their wages. The poor obviously tried to take them to court because uh, James said in verse number 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Uh, This is a metaphor for they took you to court you had really good attorneys and lawyers, and you just, they just got slaughtered in court. That's the idea that's going on here. You slaughtered, you murdered the righteous person in court with your expensive lawyers. And so the poor lost. Is it any different today? We see that in society today. It's not who has the right position. It's who has the best attorneys in our justice system. There comes a time when somebody of average means cannot compete with a team of elite lawyers. And the natural human reaction is to take matters into your own hands. When something's being unjust and you can't get through, take matters in your own hands. And that is why James transitions from condemning rich, unsaved people, lost people, to reassuring. The, the poor people in his church who are being oppressed. If you look at the transition in verse number 7, which is the first verse we'll read in just a minute, he says be patient therefore, brothers. He's, he's speaking in regard to what he just addressed. These are the people that those rich unsaved people are, con, are uh, oppressing and condemning. And so that, that's what's going on. Now what is there to be patient about here? <clears throat> first, We have to be patient in our obedience to Christ. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, my remote is still not working, so you're going to have to advance the slide. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said this, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, that would make a great movie in America, wouldn't it? That would be a blockbuster. All three people that went to see that movie would enjoy The Man Who Gets Slapped and Doesn't Slap Back. That's the name of the movie. That's, everybody would love that, wouldn't they? That's not the American way at all, is it? But notice what Jesus said. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to him, the other also. And if anyone would sue you take your tun- and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. How un-American is that? And yet Jesus practiced what he preached, didn't he? When he was standing before a kangaroo court, it was illegal, it was unjust. And they mocked him, they reviled him, they spit on him, they plucked out his beard. What happened? Absolutely nothing. The Bible says that he entrusted himself to God. Paul taught us not to resist government authorities either. Next slide. In in um, Romans 13:2 he said, "Therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment." The Bible teaches us not to uh, resist government authorities, but to honor and obey authorities. Peter goes on and says this. He says, um, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What is that example? Verse number 23 When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that is the challenge, isn't it? Entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. That is very hard for us to do. But the bottom line is that if we, believe God, then we need to learn to trust him. As we set up the passage today, I want you to note how God is being characterized, because this is important. This this frames everything that we're going to say today. In verse number four, if you look at uh, James 5, 4, notice he's condemning the wicked rich people, and he says this, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, what's happening? They're crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of who? The Lord of hosts, the Lord sabaoth That's an Old Testament Hebrew term, the Lord of armies. It's a military term. James is now framing God as a military commander in charge of heavenly armies. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord of hosts, there follows an overwhelming victory. And it's the Lord of the heavenly armies who is going to win. And that's the, the picture that James is bringing to these Jewish believers And he says, God's angelic armies are coming. And notice in verse number six, what he says is to these these rich people, he says, you have condemned them. You have murdered the righteous person. And what's the reaction? He does not resist you. And they are taking God at his word. By not resisting, and so James comes back, verse number seven, and says, therefore, be patient, brothers. James, in essence, is telling believers, when the lost oppress you, wait for the Lord. Now, that's totally countercultural, after all. We're Americans, right? We call Oprah. Call 48 Hours, or whatever other TV show it is. We mount a social media campaign. Do you know what that rascal did to me? And it's all over, and a campaign gets going, and then the local news picks it up. And we feel like we're gaining justice. Or we see the movies where somebody takes some justice into their own hands, and they come in with guns blazing, and, and that's the idea. That's the cultural That's the culture in which we live and and the lens through which we see everything going on around us. And all of this that I just mentioned is not as effective. It pales in comparison to the effectiveness, to the great power and the judgment of God Almighty. Now let's read the passage together with that as a setup. Verse number 7 As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the promise or the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have this wonderful little passage here, this encouragement to Christians, and in it we can see four encouragements. Thank you. Four encouragements for believers who are struggling during a time of unjust suffering. Four encouragements that we see. Number one, verse number seven, let's look at it together. Patiently wait on the Lord. Patiently wait on the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Why be patient? Why be patient? Because the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of vast armies is coming. We don't need to foment revolution or take justice into our own hands. We understand that judgment isn't even within our rights. That's God's right. God's the one who takes vengeance. God's the one who's the perfect judge. And so to take matters into our own hands is in essence saying, God, I don't trust you to take perfect justice. And so we're patient. We allow God to take matters and and deal with the justice. Trust God and be patient. And then James illustrates the kind of ju- patience that they must have. He says this He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that it's very dry there. The only real source of water for much of Israel is the early and the latter rains. Now, this picture is typical in in, uh, this area of Israel. Believe it or not, this this picture was only taken about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. This is around Memorial Day, this picture was taken. These are the Judean hills. Now, I actually closely cropped this. I have a really uh, good lens on my camera. But if you saw the whole picture, this stand of trees is a tiny little dot of an oasis in this vast, hot desert. Uh, that day that I took the picture it was over 100 degrees. It was, it was Memorial Day. And these Judean hills that you see here, these are where Jesus spent 40 days and nights. Not a tree around except for this little speck, just hills and hollows and heat and wind and dust. But here's what I want you to notice because I'm gonna drive my point home with this. Do you see all these little trails along the side here? You know what those are? In the wintertime, with the early and the latter rains, these hills turn green. If you were to walk on those paths, you wouldn't see a speck of a plant. It would just be dirt and you would be, you would say, how on earth does anything grow? But when we go in January, these hills are green and the sheep, the shepherds lead the sheep along the path and it's like a smorgasbord. Hmm, I'm gonna eat some of this little plant over here. Hey, I'm gonna grab some of this. And uh, the sheep just walk and eat, walk and eat, walk and eat. And they're dependent upon the rain. And even so, the farmer is dependent upon the early and the latter rains. Now, let me explain them. The early rains come in October and November, late October, and then through the month of November. And the early rains do two things. First, they help the olive harvest, olives in Israel are little kernels. When they develop on the trees until the very end, when the early rains come, they tell us it only takes a half inch of rain, they pop into what you get buy at the grocery store. If you were to try to eat them before that, it would be like eating a seed. And the early rains make the olives pop, and then they have the olive harvest. But the second thing it does is it makes the ground appropriate so that the barley and the wheat germinate. You have to have the moisture for it to germinate. Then things are kind of touch and go until March, April. That's the late rains. Now guess what the late rains are perfect for? The barley and the wheat need those latter rains in order for the fruit to really come out well. And they come and then the barley harvest happens and a few weeks later the wheat harvest happens and it's all by God's divine providence. If you miss either one, you stand a chance of suffering starvation. That is how dependent farmers are on the rain in the Middle East. And that is how dependent James wants us to be on, the, on God. And we patiently wait on him to mete out justice. That's the attitude that we are to have. And he applies this analogy to them. In verse number eight, he says, you also be patient. And then he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he tells them to establish their hearts. Now the word establish ha- carries the idea of keeping something firm in your mind, in your heart. It's make it firm in your heart. And the fir- the, what you establish in your heart is that God is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. He's the perfect judge, and he's coming. And he's going to reward some, and he's going to judge others. And so the idea of establishing your heart is to keep your heart focused on the hope that comes in the coming of the Lord. And when you do that, remember earlier James talks about the double-minded man? And when you do that, you are not the double-minded man who's going back and forth between one thing and another. You're patient and you're waiting. Remember, dear believer, your trouble is temporary and as dependent as the farmer is upon rain, so you are on the Lord in his return. He's coming. And when he comes, he will suddenly come in great glory and will make all things right. And that's the hope that James is trying to instill in his readers. But there's a second encouragement for us, and that's found in verse number nine. The second encouragement is, do not complain. He says this, he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, two things I wanna bring out here. Number one, notice the word grumble. That word grumble speaks of an inward attitude of heart. And it literally means to groan or to sigh inwardly. You ever done that? Groan or sigh inwardly? We all have, haven't we? And when a believer lives in difficult circumstances, day in and day out, they can inwardly be tempted to become impatient with God and to complain to God, and eventually that bitter attitude comes out in complaints against other people. Now, I know nobody here would do that, right? That's all those other people making all those other complaints, but we would never do that. And here is the powerful reason why he tells us not to be that way. The powerful reason is that Christ, at any time, can burst through the door, That's the picture of Christ coming. See, Christ is at the door, and he's about ready to burst through and and judge the complainers. Now, our complaining against others and our complaining in general will be judged, but I need to explain how it will be judged. First of all, remember, unbelievers who complain and complain against God and complain against others they will be judged for their sin against God and others. And there's punishment involved in that. But our, our judgment is different. Our judgment is a judgment of reward. We, we saw this when we were in 1 Corinthians, and we'll get back there in a few weeks. In 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter number three says this, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If anyone has built on a firm foundation, survives and he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved but only through fire. Let me see if I can, if I can, Um, bring this out to you in in a really good illustration, uh, a manner that you can easily see. Have you ever seen gold ore? I've never actually held gold ore, but I've seen pictures of it. It's pretty ugly, isn't it? That is the manner in which the Bible would view our service to God. In this life, we serve God, but we never serve God with a perfectly pure heart, do we? we? We serve God and we say, God, I want to glorify you. And inwardly, we're hoping that we get just a little bit of that glory too, don't we? Or we're, we serve God with a perfectly, out, out, serve somebody else with an altruistic motive, but maybe there's a little bit of selfishness in it. There is, it's impossible for us to serve God with a 100% pure heart because we're, we're, we're sinful. But God is so gracious that what he does on the day of judgment, get this, is he takes our works like gold ore, passes them through the fire, removes the dross, and presents our works pure and undefiled to him because of his great grace. What an awesome God we serve. Isn't that great? But the works that we do, now I know nobody here has ever done anything good with a purely selfish motive, right? That's only me. You've never done anything with a bitter heart or a bad spirit. And those things, not done for God's glory, done for selfish ends or whatever, the Bible likens to wood, hay, and stubble, and they just get burned up and are gone. And so our reward is brought to us that way. Our reward is either burned up or it's additionally purified and it's brought to God in praise and honor and glory. We, we serve an amazing God when you think about judgment that way. And so we, believer, need to resist the urge to complain against God, complain against our neighbors, knowing that Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to judge And he's going to judge perfectly, and he's going to judge righteously. And if you're saved, he's going to judge graciously as well. You face danger of losing your reward when you sin against God and complain and grumble. There's a third encouragement here. That's in verse number 10. He says this. He says, um, says, adopt the example of the prophets. Verse number 10 says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, this is tough to understand. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. What does James mean when he says, take the examples of the prophets? Well, if you're like me, you might want to think when things are unjust, hey, I can be like Elijah. Remember Elijah, remember the the captain of the army coming and saying, Hey Elijah the king wants to speak to you, the prophet of God. And he says, I find the prophet of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume all of you. That's not the kind of prophet he's talking about, by the way. But sometimes I would like to have that that ability. I'm not gonna lie. The kind of prophet that he's talking about would be Jeremiah. Who went to the people in power and says, this is the message of God. And he was imprisoned and he was mocked and he was ridiculed. It's the message of Amos who was, was scorned for his message for two reasons. Amos was short and Amos was a common shepherd and farmer. Shepherds were the lowest of the low in society. And he was mocked for that. It's like John the Baptist, whom the authorities imprisoned, whom the religious elite mocked when he said, thus says the Lord. It's, it's the example of Jesus who kept speaking the truth, speaking the truth, speaking the truth, no matter how it was received. And we are to take the prophetic example, and we don't take on a cause Rather, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we talk to the unjust people, and we tell them this, what you are doing is unjust, and there is a God who is going to come, and he's going to judge all things, so repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the message that we carry. That's the most powerful message you could ever give. Not some political agenda, not some social agenda, not some vengeance on social media at somebody who did you wrong And the court systems weren't judged, uh, weren't just either. It's Jesus is coming and he's going to judge. That's the message that we carry. And then there's a fourth thing from the life of Job. Consider the blessing of steadfast endurance. Look at verse number 11 with me. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Go back to the little first phrase there. Consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word blessed? The most common definition that we hear in, our, in, in um, church today is the word blessed means happy. And we'll take blessed is a man who does this and we'll, we'll uh, insert the word happy. Let me ask you a question. When you're suffering unjustly, are you ever happy? If you are, I'd like to talk to you in my office afterwards. There is not a person alive who is happy at being unjustly, persecuted. That word blessed has a much more powerful meaning. It's really hard to encapsulate, but I think it you can encapsulate it this way. And I'm going to describe it and then give you a word. They are blessed because they will receive justice and reward in heaven for their perseverance. And so therefore, they are, you ready? Fortunate. Fortunate. You are fortunate if you remain steadfast and hoping in God when all things are turning against you, when things are unjust, when things are unfair, and you simply hope in the Lord and wait for his return, knowing that he rewards you are fortunate. You're blessed. And we're to look at the example of Job. Have you seen the steadfastness of Job and seen the purpose of God, this purpose of the Lord, and how He's compassionate? Now, you're not to look at how Job acted during his trial, because frankly, he could use a little bit of improvement. There's much to commend. He didn't have he didn't have the Word of God in written form, but there's some that we wouldn't commend. And what the Bible is commending here is not Job. Actually, everything he did, the Bible is commending the fact that he patiently waited on the Lord with perseverance. And that's what we are to do. Job was completely disoriented, and sometimes life comes to you and completely disorients you, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes the things that we're involved in, they're completely just and righteous, and you just get body slammed to the ground, and you're disoriented. At that point of disorientation, what you do is you turn your hope to God and his word and read his word. And that's what Job did. Job kept turning back to the Lord, kept turning back to the Lord. So for us, Christians, we have the freedom to use the court system and legal means to try to gain justice. And that is perfectly right. And true, Paul did it as a Roman citizen. But admittedly, human courts are not perfectly just. In the United States, we have a cultural tradition that if we don't get the justice that we believe is deserved, then we mount a campaign, a crusade, we start a project, we get on Oprah, we get on the news, we, we mount a social media campaign and, and we just hammer whatever it is over and over and over. And this is, this is just and right and true. And that is exactly what the Bible tells us not to do. You know, I said this before, I'll just ask you, what is your social media feed like? Are you known on social media for your campaigns, Second Amendment, Abortion, uh, freedom of speech, uh, you, you take your pick. Some kind of social matter, is that what you're known for? Or are you known for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is far more powerful than any human campaign that we can come up with. We are to be different from culture that way. One of the tendencies then, and I'm not saying don't be involved in any of this, but one of the tendencies of Christians is to get so sucked into something like this that that becomes primary, whatever crusade we're on and whatever we believe strongly in, and the gospel becomes second place. And our focus is here, and it should be on the gospel, and it should be switched around. We have to be very careful about that. secondly we need to be waiting on the lord and waiting on the lord is not the same as doing nothing christians should speak out against injustice when justice isn't being served we should speak out we should be a loud voice but we speak differently rather than speaking about injustice alone, we preach God's word. We apply God's word to the situation. We do it with boldness. We do it with consistency. We do it in a winsome way. And we do it such that we are known for the message of the gospel, not for the cause that we're involved in. I was talking to somebody uh, after the first service, and they were talking about uh, having conversations with people who are atheists. And, and so we have this picture of people who are not believers, but they have a picture of us as well. And you know what that picture is formed by? What we do on social media. And so if you're always slamming somebody on social media, and you're always being unkind, and you're always sticking these things up, and you're always campaigning for something, and, and doing the whole us and them instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ— they, they, Their picture then is the Christians are not welcoming a people who are not. You see? And so what we are to do is preach the message of Jesus Christ and do it in a loving way, but do it boldly. And then finally, remember this. The Lord Saboeth is coming. The Lord of hosts. And he is pleased when we trust him. Looking forward to his coming and faithfully pray that he will bring justice in his coming. Amen. Let's pray. We thank thee, Father, for the encouragement that we have from James. So much of life in this world can be disorienting. It can be troubling you tell us that we will have trouble, Lord, but thank you that Christ is coming. And there's where we put our hope. And so, Lord, give us wisdom today to know how to speak to the world. Give us trust in you that is such that we will speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way that needs to be applied. And help us also, Lord, to be able to see through the, the, the cultural lenses that are in our glasses, our worldview glasses, Lord, and help us to take on the truth that God has given us in his word. In Christ's name, amen.